the motion is adopted. The New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, now faces an impeachment investigation in the state assembly. Welcome back to the Right House podcast with me, Matt Shaw, editor at The Locus, and Alaraza Manji, a journalist at CGS News. Hi, Alaraza. Hi, Matt. How are you? Yeah, not terrible. Yourself? Yeah, pretty good. We've got a lot to talk about today, I think. We have, yeah. I'll jump straight in. So we've got Kickstart coming up. That's just where we look at three big stories in US politics this week. Starting with the first one, on Wednesday, the House gave its final approval to Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan, sending it to the president's desk to be signed. It passed 220 to 211 with no Republican support and one Democrat, Representative Jared Golden of Maine, opposing the final measure. It includes billions of dollars for state and local aid, vaccine rollout programs, school funding and small business relief, as well as $1,400 in direct payments and $300 per week jobless benefits. Uh, A second story. On Thursday, the New York State Assembly, controlled by Democrats, began an impeachment inquiry into Governor Andrew Cuomo. Multiple women have so far made allegations of sexual harassment or other inappropriate behaviour. Cuomo has apologised for unintentionally acting in, quote, a way that made people feel uncomfortable. But now, as members of his own party turn against him, he said Friday that the growing pressure was cancel culture, which we'll both know is a particularly hot buzzword among Republican officials as of late. So it's it's a strange move by Cuomo. Alaraza, what do you think of this situation? So this is obviously, there have been three allegations that have come against him from three different women, including one who worked for him as his economic advisor, who sort of started this process. Um, and her name is Lindsay Boylan, and she worked for him for many years. And, you know, one of the things she said was that he asked her to play strip poker with her. He, on, an, on another occasion, he forced himself onto her and tried to kiss her. Uh, and, you know, him coming out and saying that I know I, un- I understand that I acted in, in, a, in a bad way and I made someone feel uncomfortable isn't enough in this scenario. These allegations, he's accepted that they're serious allegations that the inquiry should go ahead. But that's far from what these women need and they need justice. And one of the things I actually heard, which was reported, was that when he made this statement, one starter uh, literally burst into tears when he said this because... Uh, it was reported that she, uh, in his private mansion on the second floor, he put her, he forced her into a room and he fondled her. And she was crying because he made the statement which is completely contradictory to her experience. So I think this is a very, very sensitive topic, Matt. And I think it's something that we do need to get to the bottom of because it's not the only thing that Cuomo has been struggling with. And it will be down to Letitia James, who's the state attorney general, to get down to it. But the pressure is mounting on him politically because we've had we've now had 59 uh, in total state officials coming to coming and calling for his resignation. And that is on top of some uh, more national figures, such as uh, uh, AOC, who is a representative in New York, calling for him to put New York first. So uh, it, it's going to be a strange time for him that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting. Um, It's good. It's positive that members of his own party aren't defending him and they are looking for impeachment on the back of, you know, these allegations and previous allegations, which I'm sure you'll touch on in more detail in a moment. Um, But I did just want to, you know, make make the quick point that I think while this is positive, 
it also reminded me that I think it very much is something that the Democrats would do, that the Republicans wouldn't, which is a you know worrying in the sense that I, I'm I'm utterly convinced that if this was the other other way round, you'd have um, GOP officials essentially defending and and kind of ignoring these allegations rather than pushing for impeachment. I think it's hard to argue with that point. In many scenarios, you know, you've got whatever happens, the GOP tends to defend the GOP. So it is very positive that national figures and state figures are really seeing this in a serious light, which it should be seen because these allegations are horrid. And if true, he should step down, he should resign, and there should be further action taken against him, uh, hopefully. Um, but, you know, everyone is innocent until proven guilty, but these allegations should be taken seriously, and I'm glad they are. The other allegations, as you talked about, were that of the fact that he faked the numbers on uh, COVID deaths when it came to nursing homes. So the actual statistics were around 15,000 deaths from long-term patients in care homes, uh, while the figures he had put out were 8,500. Um, and, you know, this is in a state which has seen 49,000 deaths in total with 1.7 million cases of COVID. Uh, the death rate is the second highest in terms of the amount of people that have died only below California, which is on 55,000 deaths. So the statistics are startling. They're shocking. The amount of people who have died and the audacity to cover that up is undeniably bad. But th there's a further point to add to this is that Ron Kim, who's a state legislator for Queens, was threatened to being with being destroyed by Cuomo if he didn't help cover this up. So th these allegations are coming together and it's painting a, a ridiculous amount of pressure on him. And if he was to be impeached, he would be the first person since 1913 and the second ever to be impeached in New York, New York the first being William Seltzer in 1913. So we are seeing some historic events, Matt. But, you know, it's, it's a strange feeling as some people are descri describing as a fall from grace. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it is kind of strange to see how quickly things have turned around. But I guess it's just a case of, you know, at the time, people were just praising him because of what he was doing. And, and now more has come to light about the other things he was doing. So it's definitely, yeah, it definitely is kind of a fall from grace for him. And I guess that leads us to one question, you know, I think we, we, we've been talking about it off, off the record. But it's a strange thing for us to discuss is that, you know, should he go? And I think, in my view, I, if these allegations, even any one of these allegations about sexual assault come true, he should go. The, the fact that he covered up death, he should go. And these allegations mean something. They have to mean something. When someone comes forward, it should be respected. Cuomo said that himself. And if it is proven true, then he should go. He should step down and do the right thing for New Yorkers, but also the right thing just morally. What, what, do you agree, Matt? Yeah, I think he should step down, but I don't think he will. Um, he's quite a stubborn guy. So in that case, I think, uh, honestly, that he should be impeached. Um, because, I mean, the, it's not even just one set of allegations. He's got these three different kinds of allegations all levelled at him. And so, yeah, I think it, it does kind of reach the threshold where it's like, well, this you can't be leading the state through a crisis when you're being accused of covering up the severity of that crisis and also for really inappropriate conduct um, with multiple women. So no, yeah, I think he should step down or be impeached if he refuses to. In fact, uh, we've already seen him, like I said earlier, you know, move into this kind of cancel culture defence, um, which is not only more popular with Republicans, it's also just uh, usually quite a bad way of, you know, trying to get out of admitting that you did something wrong and, and just instead painting it that people are coming after you. 
Alaraza, do you think that there is a problem at the moment with people turning to use this cancel culture defence a bit too readily? It's strange that you mentioned cancel culture because I know we're going to discuss it later when it comes down to Piers Morgan and what's happened in the UK. Uh, but I think with Republicans, it's become a really pertinent thing where it's like, if you're, you know, you're shouting me down, you're, you're not allowing me to express my opinion. And in, in this case, it's not cancel culture for someone, for a woman who's been sexually assaulted to come out and talk about this. It should be encouraged. And that is the bottom line. It shouldn't just be encouraged, it should be listened to because these allegations are very serious. And at the end of the day, whatever Cuomo says, it's not the defense he should be using. In fact, his lawyers were suggesting he doesn't use, use this defense at all. It's not the approach he should be using. And realistically, the approach he should be using is at least listing these allegations in fair treatment. But as you said earlier, he's a stubborn man, and I don't think he would go even unless, unless he was actually impeached, which is why the, you know, these, the name William Seltzer came up from 1913. So it's going to be a strange week going ahead as we, as we wait to hear what this inquiry has to say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, with this kind of cancel culture rhetoric, you know, they're trying to remove me. Um, I think it kind of also highlights that he's, he's changed now. So originally he was on the defensive and now it seems to be more of a, a kind of attacking position, uh, which does flow nicely um, into our third story of Kickstart, which is that Donald Trump himself has been on the attack. He spent the week continuing with a rhetoric that divides his own party after his lawyers sent cease and desist letters to top Republican organizations, including the Republican National Committee, telling them to stop using his name and likeness to raise money. Uh, instead, on Monday evening, he said, quote, no more money for rhinos, which stands for Republican in name only. And it refers to people who are elected as Republicans and then kind of legislate like Democrats. Um, they do nothing but hurt the Republican Party and our great voting base. They will never lead us to greatness. Send your donation to Save America Pack at DonaldJTrump.com. We will bring it all back stronger than ever before. So he's, it's not even just trying to um, stop them using his name and likeness. It's also just essentially diverting all their fundraising to his own pockets. Yeah, so it's, it's a strange play from Trump, perhaps one we should have expected, right? I mean, it, it, it's weird that we've, we've been talking about what Trump's going to do for the last few weeks, but this is a very strange play, but perhaps one we should have expected ahead of the midterms. You know, politics in America and elections in America don't stop, like for us, it, they keep going. And the midterms are right around the corner at the end of the day. And I think, as you said, uh, Republicans in name only is a criticism which has been used of sort of more liberal or, you know, softer Republicans and not his sort of Tea Party group or his Trumpites. And taking funding away from typical American uh, super PACs, which at the end of the day are very unregulated, uh, basically ways of donating, taking money away from those is a really good way to strengthen his own position in the party. And at the end of the day, they have to accept him or they don't have a nominee in some ways. In, uh, in four years time. So at the end, you know, one of the best quotes I heard from this was actually on CNN, where a Republican donor, Dan Eberhardt, basically said to CNN, if you control the money, you control the party. And it rings very, very true, because at this point, or if the donations are all going to him, what happens to the rest of the Republican Party? They have to notice him. Even though he's not shouting on Twitter, he's still very successful right now. And he has that control. And it's going to be very, very worrying for most Republicans, I imagine, uh, about what's happening. Yeah, this is pretty much the GOP's worst nightmare. They've, they were already dealing with Trump dividing members of their party. 
uh, and that was bad enough. And I honestly did think that it would kind of stick there. I thought that he'd be a kind of divisive figure, but ultimately that he'd stick with the Republican Party because they'd bring him success. But instead he's gone even more self-centered than I thought he would go and that I think a lot of people thought he would go. And instead he's now pretty much just focusing his campaign on himself um, like you said, kind of bringing in the funding that would have gone to the, the RNC. And it does, yeah, it gives him a lot of power. It gives him a lot of sway. And it means that, yeah, any, any moderate Republicans, any Republicans who have so far managed to succeed by saying that, you know, oh, well, I agree with Trump's policies, but I don't agree with Trump, they're going to be kicked to the side now because it is you're looking like a very much kind of, you know, you either stick with Trump or you leave the party kind of situation. How do you think it will affect the Republican Party going forward? I mean, do you see any likelihood of a third party emerging or do you think it would just be the Republican Party goes fully pro-Trump? I'd say this is a conversation we've been having for a while where we don't know what the exact play is for, for, for Trump. We don't know exactly what the play is for the Republican Party. But the one thing we know is that it is a broad church. It's always been a broad church and perhaps it can accommodate these two views, but I don't think it can personally. I think you've got this side of the Republican Party where if they give in to Trump now, they will give in to Trump. Even if they don't want to, they have no choice and they have to accept him as a candidate, especially if all the funding is going to him. Because at the end of the day, how can you run a campaign without funding? You will lose. And that's the bottom line. Money talks in this and money is talking because if all the funding goes to him and it's not going to the super PACs, which traditionally would support to the Republican Party, at the end of the day, Trump has the money and he can say, hold on, I've got the funding here. They're backing me. So either you back me or you don't back me. But either way, I've got the money. And I think that's the real worry. And I think, you know, it's it's going to be a strange time because I think the Republican Party is still soul searching. It still doesn't know what to do. But at this point, this is a, this is a very strong power play from Trump saying he's effectively forcing the hand of the Republican Party to make that choice. And if he gets all the funding and if he, get, if he gets the majority of the funding and we, as we head into the midterms, then you've got to make a serious consideration because they want to make a strong power play in the midterms, right? They do want to be successful in those. But if the money's going to him, then it's his supporters, his candidates. Uh, and then as we head into the actual election, which is still a long time away, and the thought process will be, in all, what if Trump's our candidate again? And I don't think he's showing any sign of quitting because this was uh, expected, but also a very powerful move, Matt. Yeah, this is kind of like in Monopoly when one player gets really successful and starts putting houses and hotels all over the board and then you can't do anything without paying some money or like surrendering to the rich person. Ironically, I'm pretty sure Trump's already done that around the US and, and the world. But uh, thanks for that analogy, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. He's going down the same lines he went down a while back where he criticised the Republican Party so they have to soul search and they have to decide where they go. And as it's looking, they're going to be supporting Trump because at the end of the day, the money's going to him. So how can they run their campaigns? How can they be successful if they haven't got the backing of the biggest, you know, if they haven't got the money backing? Because at the end of the day, that's what wins these elections. You know, you have to get your campaign off the ground some, in some shape or form. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I did find it funny, uh, according to CNN, one anonymous Republican operative described the situation as, quote, some natural tension. Uh, which I found quite, I thought that was a strange way of putting it. Um, if they want to paint this as like a normal situation, then by all means they can try. But it, it, personally, I think this is pretty much the worst scenario for the Republican Party. Yeah, I think Trump's played a, a Trump card, ironically, 
and <laughs> <laughs> Our second segment of this episode is Fox News Story of the Week, uh, and it actually revolves around ITV. So before we get into it, uh, Alaraza, you were on ITV earlier this week, right? Yeah, so I was on the evening news uh, on Tuesday, where we saw I, I was somehow asked to discuss uh, the interview, the bombshell interview between Meghan Markle and Prince Harry and Oprah Winfrey, which aired uh, in the US, which picked up 17.1 million live viewers and in the UK airing the next day it aired with 12.4 million peak viewers uh, so a very very huge interview which um, you know at the end of the day uh, ITV paid 1 million for but I don't think that's the key point of this it, you know we heard a clip from Tucker Carlson a Fox News commentator because this is Fox News story of the week where he called Piers Morgan a GMB anchor who, who left with mutual consent because of his difference in views with the ITV seniority uh, and Tucker Carlson called him an inspiration. We're playing it for you now. Piers Morgan, whom we told you last night, just left his job on a British morning show after failing to be sufficiently impressed by that whiny duchess from LA complaining about how hard her life is. He refused to let the mob make him lie. And that is an inspiration to all of us. Piers Morgan just reminded the world that some things are more important than having a job, like your dignity and your self-respect. History will treat him well. Welcome back. So as you heard there from Tucker Carlson, he, you know, he called Piers Morgan an inspiration and that he didn't let the mob control his opinions. Uh, but I think th this interview has obviously shaped the world in some ways. And we've been discussing it for weeks on end in some ways because we've been looking in anticipation to it, but also as the reaction has come out of it. So Piers Morgan obviously received 41,000 complaints on Ofcom, which is the regulator in the UK. Uh, and this was because of his comments about Meghan Markle, where he went, went on a 30-minute tirade the night after, so on Monday morning in the UK, and then again on Tuesday morning, where he clashed with fellow presenter on ITV Good Morning Britain, uh, Alex Beresford. Um, so altogether, these complaints coming together and his, you know, his unwillingness uh, to listen to Meghan Markle, uh, where he basically said he didn't believe any a word she said, and we can play that for you now. OK, again, let's have the names. Who did you go to? What did they say to you? I'm sorry, I don't believe a word she says, Meghan Markle. Well, that's a I wouldn't believe it if she read me a weather report. And the fact that she's fired up this, this onslaught thoughts. against our royal family, I think is contemptible. In, in, in this clip, you know, he, he, as you can hear, he doesn't believe her and he, he's, he refuses to believe her. And these comments go in direct confrontation with uh, ITV, who have been very supportive of mental health and run a mental health campaign. And it was revealed a few days later by CNN that uh, ITV actually received a complaint about mental health from the Duchess of Sussex herself, Meghan Markle, about the worries about the impact. So we've got a, a few situations here to talk about. But first of all, uh, you know, we can start with what Tucker Carlson said about freedom of speech. Was this about freedom of speech, Matt? Well, that's certainly what they'd like you to believe. Um, so obviously Tucker Carlson led in with this cancel culture rhetoric uh, that Republicans jam through in every sentence at the moment. And Piers Morgan himself said free speech was a hill I'm willing to die on. It's, it is, it, obviously it's about free speech because, you know, he said something and he faced consequences for what he said. But I think there's a misunderstanding in the sense that he has free speech he used his free speech to essentially say that he thought that Meghan Markle was lying about her suicidal thoughts and her mental health, um, and he faced appropriate consequences. I mean, he's been 
on ITV for years now saying, you know, really damaging things and essentially getting away with it and not really facing much backlash. Um, so to finally face some consequences and be called out by a, a fellow host and then step down in what I imagine was, you know, not exactly great circumstances. It, it doesn't affect his free speech. He still has his free speech. He can still talk freely. You know, he faced consequences. Free speech, there's a classic misunderstanding with it, is that you can still face consequences and criticism for what you say. It's just that you can't be prosecuted for what you say, apart from, you know, things like um, hate speech. So I think, yeah, there's an issue of free speech, but I don't think, I don't think it was... Um, I don't think it was breached and it wasn't, it's not like it was taken away from him. Do you agree? So I think Piers Morgan has built his reputation over the years as being this combative, you know, uh, journalist. And we, you know, we, we, we've often argued whether he is a journalist or is he just a commentator, you know, because for the last six to seven years, we've been seeing him on Good Morning Britain and he's been fighting the ratings and actually he won the ratings battle with BBC breakfast uh, on this exact same day. But it's not just Tucker Carlson and Republicans talking about this. It's also, you know, CNN comments, CNN anchors. Uh, we had Jake Tapper put out a tweet saying, this is what happens where you live in a country where there's no First Amendment insanity. And this was referring to Ofcom basically launching an investigation into Piers Morgan about this after all those complaints that came in. But, you know, I, I agree with you. I think that free speech allows you to say what you need to say. It gives you the right, you know, to go on and investigate. It gives you the right to voice an opinion an honestly held opinion, which I think is the key words we can use. Um, But at a point where you are effectively going against ITV's own backing of mental health issues, I think that's where the the line is drawn in some ways, because ITV has to show that it is, you know, it's put out a campaign where it's worked on mental health. And I think that's very important because at the end of the day, it became the CEO against Piers Morgan and who was going to give, it wasn't going to be the CEO. It was going to be Piers Morgan having to give way, and he did, and he lost his job over it. Um, I think at a point, it's very important because you can question Meghan Markle, you can choose not to believe her, but at the end of it, other people also have the right to voice their opinions on it. And when it came down to it, his complaints were very damaging because charities like Mind in the UK, among others, were criticizing exactly that because you can't shut down someone's experience just because you don't like them. Alaraza, have you heard of Silhouette? I have, Matt. I'm looking forward to listening to the new episodes coming out soon, which I'm sure you're about to talk about. That's exactly what I'm about to talk about. It's almost like I bullet-pointed it down on the outline. Uh, Silhouette is a podcast, a semi-regular podcast by The Locust. It looks at the gritty details of the story in US politics. And in fact, there is a special episode up right now that you can go and listen to. It's episode one of a separate podcast that's kind of in the in the works. Um, but I'm giving a sneak preview of episode one. Now, the podcast is called The Looking Glass, and it examines African-American history through the lens of the presidency. So if you want to go and listen on Silhouette, Uh, to that first episode about slavery and the civil war looking at Abraham Lincoln. You can go and search Silhouette on Spotify, wherever you get your pods. Uh, Listen in. I'm joined by expert guest Brenda Stevenson, a historian and professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. She's great. She's lovely to hear from. She's really knowledgeable. She's funny. Uh, it's, It's all around just a great chat. So go and check it out. 
Welcome back to the podcast. I hope Matt's ASMR didn't tire you out. He's been doing it for the last few weeks, as you may have noticed. Um, but this segment is called Burning Questions, where, as, as it says in the title, we answer your burning questions. So first up, uh, why didn't Trump produce and distribute vaccines like Biden has so far? Uh, Matt, do you want to start on this one? Sure. Um, there are a, a couple things at play. Um, Trump oversaw the development of the vaccine, uh, Operation Warp Speed, you know, that whole thing. But um, in terms of the, the production and distribution, he ran into roadblocks of his own making, kind of, because he operated more on a, you know, an, um, a framework of like, let's let the states govern themselves and do it themselves. Um, so that kind of, you know, it doesn't really work. So the states do need some sort of direction on such a massive logistical challenge. Um, so I think there's the fact that Biden's taking a very much more federal, like kind of top down structure to it. I think that helps. Um, and I think also just that Biden uh, not only takes it more seriously and puts more focus on it, but also just that uh, this is going to sound very biased, but I think it's also just true. Biden's an experienced politician. Trump is not a politician whatsoever. So I think in something like this, it's logistics, it's um, people management, it's you know uh, public messaging, public health, things like that. Biden knows a lot more about how to do it and what to do than Trump. And it doesn't help as well that the people around Trump telling him what to do, uh, they were either <laughs> sycophantic Trump supporting people just in it for their own good, so they're not really bothered either. Or if they were genuine, like Dr. Fauci, uh, he just ignored them. So I think that's that's pretty much the key things at play. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, Biden's acceptance of Dr. Fauci and you know following his lead, and even though we're hearing rumors now that you know the U.S. could go into some form of a uh, increasing some form of restrictions and so on and so forth, and it's it's taking the federal lead which I think is very key to this entire process. It's not downplaying the virus. It's that, you know, the vaccine is important. People do need to take it. We need to answer people's questions about it. And we need to get it produced as quickly as possible. We need to distribute it as quickly as possible. But as I said, Trump did, did play his part in terms of designing the vaccine. And as we discussed last week, it could be important in getting it to certain communities. But at the end of the day, it's Biden has really just taken it and taken the federal approach, you know, using federal resources and, you know, saying that, you know, I don't really care what happens uh, at state level. I need to do this from this level and we need to get it to people who need it most. I really hope that answers um, your question. But moving on, a second question that we have is that it's been a year since the killing of Breonna Taylor. Uh, what has President Biden done to address racism and racial inequality in the U.S.? Uh, Matt, do you want to start? Yeah, I know you've got more details about the specifics of this. Um, I think uh, he's done something in terms of he's signed executive orders and that's kind of a, it's a step in the right direction. It's definitely a positive step. Um, and it's what he promised to do in part, but I think there's been a notable lack of legislation I know that in the recent weeks, they've been really focused on getting this $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill through, um, and that, but that's done now. So hopefully, and, and before that, you know, there was the impeachment as well. So hopefully now that those two major things are out of the way, they can focus on this really important question of, you know, where is this legislation to tackle racism and racial inequity in the US? Because it, it was one of his key promises. And... It, you know, it's, it's really important. So I think his steps so far have been positive, but they need to do a lot more. 
Uh, you've got uh, more on that, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, President Biden, when he took off, it's one of the worries people had. And I think it was it was a genuine worry. It was a concern because, you know, you had Kamala Harris become your vice president. So, you know, you, you were showing a genuine concern, a genuine acceptance. You know, he genuinely, you know, he, he came out in his manifesto with a plan for black America. And he saw it as one of the four key issues that he wanted to tackle in his first days on the job. So one of the first things uh, President Biden did uh, to answer your question was that he dissolved Trump's 1776 commission, which was a group which would downplay the role of slavery in American history. Now, he's taken more actions in the, in the coming days where, you know, he basically signed executive actions, basically to bolster fairness and justice, denounced racism and xenophobia, uh, among other things, and also, you know, uh, direct the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development to combat housing discrimination, uh, strengthen the f- uh, federal government's respect for tribal sovereignty, so on and so forth, and not to renew contracts with private prisons, which have a distinct role in racism. But one of the key things he signed, actually, in his first day in office was a, pl- uh, you know, a sort of a plan to pursue a comprehensive approach to advancing equity for all, including people of color and others who have been historically undeserved, marginalized, and adversely affected by persistent poverty and inequality. That's something which is very important because, you know, as we, you know, as you led in with this question, it is, it is a year to Breonna Taylor, and she hasn't seen full the form of justice, I suppose, that people want to see. And it's this idea of allowing Black America to prosper, to breathe, which is very important in getting the sort of equity that we want to talk about. So it's, it's you know, I think, you know, we, we've heard that uh, Breonna Taylor's family has been given some money. We've also heard now, uh, yeah, 8.6 million pounds and 12 million dollars. You know, money's been paid. But it's not just the money which solves this issue. It is a genuine concern that we can see in America that over racism go away. And, you know, people genuinely see people as their equals and they're treated in institutions as their equals. You know, we don't see that black men are more likely to go to prison because just because of their life chances or whatever, you know, uh, in the police. We have to genuinely approach and deal with all of this inequity in all aspects. So it is going to be a challenge for President Biden. He's taken some early steps to show his indication that he's very much interested in doing it but we are going to need to see some real legislation as matt said so i think president biden has taken action to answer your question but it's gonna we're gonna need to see a lot more in terms of actual legislation now that this 1.9 trillion dollar package has passed and hopefully you know the other few key bills that he's got in place will pass too and then we will see him look at racism and look at race as a key issue that we need to tackle and see how we can actually feasibly do it absolutely that's you know two really important questions uh, that people do need to be asking and I just want to remind uh, all the listeners to please send in any questions you do have about anything um, to do with US politics you can tweet us uh, at right house pod or find us on Facebook or Instagram with the same handle uh, so please do it's really interesting we love answering these questions um, and I think it you know really helps highlight some uh, important issues but with that said I think we've run out of time for this episode Uh, So all that's left is for me to thank you for listening in, you, Elaraza, for joining me as always, and say, take care. Take care.